From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you, we're at Cybos, so of course we're discussing Swift GPI. Alison Rose is appointed as RBS's new first female chief exec and Monzo bins off Monzo Plus. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 361 of Fintech Insider, live from Cybos in London. Today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Leda Glyptus. How are you doing, Leda? Considering it's the last day of Cybos and I'm standing, smiling and coherent, I think I'm doing pretty well. You're doing extremely well. There's like no natural light in here, but a lot of, uh, a lot of Cybos goodness. And there's a lot of unicorns and uh, conference swag. A lot of unicorns around, and I've just been told that all the best stuff has run out, and I'm a bit of a loser when it comes to swag. So I'll just hold on to our beautiful unicorn and feel like a winner. Indeed. And if you don't know what we're talking about, do check out our social. But of course, we're not alone. We are here with unicorns and some fantastic guests. Um, first up, making his debut, we have Chris Truce, who's head of FinTech at Saxo Bank. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Thanks uh, for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Next up, we have making return visits, Niall Cameron, Global Head of Corporate and Digital at HSBC. How's it going, Niall? Very good. Enjoying Cybos? Good stuff. And Ali Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at Fintech Finance. Ali, how's it going, mate? It's all going well. I'm, I'm a bit worried that there's no more swag. Is that right? We're all running out of swag. It's Swag, it's sad. <laughs> Swagness, sadness. Uh, but don't, don't luckily, have no fear, though. There are unicorns. Okay, okay. There, there are unicorns, and there's a lot of great news. Um, so let's get on with the show. First story. Uh, well, this came from Finextra, but it could have come from just about anywhere. Of course, we're at Cybos, um, and we have to discuss the big announcement this week coming from Swift: um, the adoption of uh, GPI and the impact on global payments. So. Through uh, the Global Payments Initiative, SWIFT and the banking community have put in place a new way to handle cross-border payments. GPI was launched to make payments faster, traceable, and more transparent. Uh, and of course, the SWIFT say that the idea behind GPI is to go from the old model towards a fully transparent, faster system, and in a system not only allowing customers to know when the end beneficiary is credited, but also allowing payments to be traced and with data unaltered. That's pretty powerful, and apparently they say, 56% of cross-border payments on SWIFT are now sent via GPI, which is more than half and pretty significant, get, considering a few years ago uh, there were questions as to whether this would get adopted. I mean, Lida, what was your first uh, thoughts when you saw this? My first thought when I saw the announcement was, why are we announcing this again, to be honest? Because, <laughs> because GPI didn't just happen. Um, I'm a fan of GPI, huge fan, particularly because the, the bank I was working at when this became a real thing and it's not very hard to work out, but let's not name them, even though I can see them from where I sit. Um, <laughs> they wouldn't have come to the table for this kind of conversation. So it forced our hand, and from an innovation technology perspective, it was absolutely brilliant news. But what I find particularly powerful is that as you go through the layers of GPI and the intention behind it, Swift made it very clear from the get-go, and, 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 and to me that represented a bit of a gear change for Swift. They made it clear that the minute they had critical mass on adoption, they were pushing this hard. This, this was going to lose optionality once it had critical mass, which it has now. And I think that's the important news. It's not GPI is cool, it's, it's tipped. So now this is the new normal, and that is amazing. For a standards body, Swift can uh, definitely coalesce and coordinate and convince in, in a quite compelling way. But Niall, there's real benefits here, whether you're on the consumer or the corporate side. Yeah, this, this is a great product. And, I, and I, you know, we started looking at um, this when we set up digital a few years ago, three years ago. And uh, I was very concerned about the payments, how payments just went dark. You know, it, you, you could see them up to a certain point, and then they just went dark and you had to wait. Um, and this, this was a really bad customer outcome. So when, when Swift GPI came in place, we looked at it and said, this is fantastic. If this is going to work, we can build a product off this. We did actually, we built a product called Track Payments inside of our system. It's been very popular and we're looking at the next iteration of that. But it's just fantastic. The more, the more data, the more transparency we can get, and then the more light you can see in the, in the payments process, the better it's going to be. I'm also quite excited, I agree, that you know, this wasn't a new announcement, but I think the statistics of the adoption of the new announcement. And um, you know, we, we're, we're you know, a firm advocate of it. I think what's gonna be interesting is the next wave, because they've sort of broken the seal in a sense. And so what is the, the next wave of data that they can, they can pass out of the SWIFT system 
that can basically be used for custom, good customer outcomes. And I think that's going to be the, the next interesting thing and possibly will be the, the topic at, at uh, Cybos next year from them. And Chris, talk to me about some of those customer outcomes because transparency sounds great, traceability sounds great, but what, what does that mean for you and me? Yeah, so I tend to agree actually, but the way I see it is like a train doesn't drive without rails, a plane doesn't fly without petrol. When it comes to me transacting, uh, what is it that's important to me? Like if 40%, or so I think the number was, of the payments actually arrive within 30 minutes and 20% or whatever it was arrive in five minutes, to me, it's kind of like a half bake. It's not like the solution's not quite there yet. At the end of the day, if we want real-time payments, and I know that we get that in some like jurisdictions, like Australia, for example, has their real-time payment rails now. But if we really want to achieve that internationally, I think for me, uh, as a user, some outcomes might be like just a validation layer. Like when you actually send the payment, Knowing that the that actual gone, account yeah. that I've typed in is validated and that it will actually arrive or that the account that I've typed in will actually accept the euros that I'm sending. Like some real basic validation principles could be like an interesting next, next layer on top of that uh, system. I mean, from a, from a retail person's point of view. I expect we'll be seeing that kind of thing. And, um the way Swift have been talking about GPI is very much about reasserting their own relevance, right? And, and they're, they're open about this and good on them. Creating the rails that will allow all of us, not just the ones who invest in it, to, to get with the program, but also create the capability for the propositions to come on top, not from them and not from the banks. So I suspect that a lot of what you're talking about will be ecosystem driven. It, and it will create a, a very interesting cybos conversation in the years to come. Mm. You know, I think we're talking about tracking a lot at the moment. You're absolutely right. But confirmations are really good as well. So mm. in, in a world of faster payments or almost immediate payments, the tracking becomes less uh, poignant or less useful, but actually the confirmation becomes just as useful. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, it's this zone of tracking confirmation that's been opened up by it, which I think is really positive. Well, Niall, that's a good point, because uh, you know, even something as simple as WhatsApp, I get the one tick, two tick, blue ticks. You know, it's, it's, it's gone, it's been received, okay, it's been seen. And actually, I don't have that in international payments, and this is the point Chris was just making. And actually, that confidence for the consumer, but also the confidence for a business who may be looking at you know, big asset financing, maybe looking at uh, millions, if not hundreds of millions in a single transaction in some cases. Like, imagine being that CFO or that treasury officer that's got hundreds of millions and you don't know where the money's gone and you you've don't got, know You've got deal, deals that are legally dependent on the payment being made. Yes. You know, that's a, that's a sweaty position to be in. And the, the quicker you can get rid of that, the better. Indeed, but it's, uh, it's interesting thinking about the future of where this goes, Ali, and, and uh, you've been at a good few Cybosses in the last few years. How do you see the trend on this conversation evolving? Well, it's weird because I was thinking back to uh, Cybos Toronto uh, with uh, Sam zooming around and we were talking about all the various buzzwords, and this is when Swift GPI was in its infancy, and it was almost kind of put as another, another buzzword, and here we are two years later, 50% adoption is incredible. Um, but do you think it's potentially Swift trying to, trying to fight Ripple a bit? Because I know there's a lot of talk of Riffle. I don't know. I, I, I think it's Swift. Things like Ripple, but more importantly, Libra and other things out there have created a different um, conversation about payments, I wonder. Um, and I don't know, Niall, Lida, I'd look to your views on this. But Lida, you said something on a panel yesterday that really stuck out to me, which is um, it's not just the people at Cybos that, um, that are deciding the future of payments anymore. Can you expand on what you meant by that? Uh Yes, I love talking about it. Um, so let me, let me take it back to Ali's point. I don't think it's specifically about Ripple. I think it's about their relevance in the changing world. And, and Ripple is a part of that, but I, but I actually think that it's swift going back to basics. What are we here for? Why did the community come together? What value do we add? And in a changing world, what does that value need to look like? So are companies like Ripple part of what forces the conversation to change? Absolutely. Is it in response to them? I don't think so. I think it's actually a long, hard look at what it is they bring to the community. And to me, a very meaningful look because it actually goes deep. It's ecosystem driven. It looks at that layer between the proprietary value. It, so it does what Swift came together to do. Um, but it's also undeniably a reflection on the point I was trying to make yesterday on the Future of Money panel, um, Simon, that there was a time that we would all come together at Cybos uh, when some of us actually met for the first time five, six, seven years ago, 
And the banks around the table knew that the world was changing, but felt in control of the pace of and extent of the conversation. We, and I was very much a banker at the time, we felt that we would get to make choices about when, what, and how. And the, that illusion does not exist anymore. We know that the pace of conversation is not necessarily in our control, that what is going to prevail is not necessarily in our control. Regulators are much more involved in the conversation. Third parties outside our industry creating technology adoption and client expectations are very much changing the conversation. And the one thing that none of us expected, but with hindsight should have done, is that a lot of the people who change the conversation are not in themselves successful, but they still change the conversation. So one of the biggest changes in the last few years is that realization. Um, and, and I think that SWIFT have shown to your point, Ali, an incredible degree of internalization and maturity in that time to go from what should we do to this is what we're doing and here's the adoption rate. I think they've been heavily criticized. Is that clear? I'm a fan. Yeah. No, but they've been heavily criticized, I think, by because of that change in expectation, like you say, from the regulators, from industry, from third parties. And actually, this, this the rapid adoption of GPI shows potential for more, but there's still so much more that they could do. So I'm sure we'll end up coming back to this one you know, again and again. Just, just on this last point, I think that if... Um, if you can actually, there's so many interesting new systems evolving and new sort of ecosystems evolving, but there's nothing better than something you can do right now. Yeah. And you can take <laughs> so it right true. now and turn it into a product and give it to your clients and your clients are, are really pleased with that product. And so I think that's really the, my feeling on it. There, there may well be other things emerging, but you can actually do something very good with this right now. That's really powerful. Uh, thanks for the last word there, Niall. I think a good point. And uh, leads me to uh, our next story, which is... Uh, well, it's RBS appointing Alison Rose as their chief executive. This came from the FT, but I think it was widely covered. And of course, Alison will become the first woman to lead one of the UK's top banks after being confirmed as the new chief executive of Royal Bank of Scotland. They'll also become the only company in the FTSE 100 index with women in both the top two executive positions following Katie Murray's appointment as chief financial officer last year. Alison Rose, who currently leads RBS's commercial and private banking business, has long been quote, seen as the favourite. And she saw competition apparently from several rivals in the organization like Mark Bailey and Ian Stewart. Um, so uh, this is a, a changing, challenging time for, for banks. But um, who, who wants to start with this one? What, what are your thoughts, Pan? I've never met Alison Rose, but I only know one thing about her that really stuck in my head. That apparently she has on her computer the 11FS stickers that say, get shit done, get shit done, get shit done, all down, all down the side. And that's all I need to know about her. I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> Sold. Uh, any other thoughts for the panel? I, I feel as the, as the resident female, I have to say two things. One is, um, Alison Rose, I, I don't personally know her either, but uh, I don't know anyone who doesn't lead with how competent she is, how capable she is. So um, from, um, from a representation perspective, Having someone who's so universally respected be the first woman in such a position is important. Um, far it be from me to criticize the UK, considering with Brexit, I'm in a very precarious position at the moment. <laughs> However, what I find interesting as a woman in this space is that I, um, I was in, in Norway not so long ago with our partners, DMB, stood on stage with a chief executive officer who's female, chief information officer who's female. And when I made a comment to the wider team, they were like, but they were the best people for the job. What are you talking about? And what I'm talking about is representation matters. So it has taken my entire career for this to happen in my adopted country. I love that she's the best person for the job. It matters so much to the people starting now, just visually. Yeah. Um, so, so a big win. And hopefully that that role model and that visual does inspire a lot more people that it makes it achievable and we see a lot more talent come into the industry uh, because this is an industry that really needs great talent at the moment because it's facing massive challenges. Yeah, yeah well, the, the challenge for women is to stay in the industry, not to come into the industry, but let's hope that that makes it... Um well, fair. interesting point. Um, but of course, challenging time for, for British banks generally. Um, profit margins have been hit by competition in the mortgage market. We've got the economic uncertainty because of the B word. Um, and there are also the threats from the tech giants. Um, do you think that um, 
we're going to see uh, more changes at the top like this. Do you think we, we, we hope we see a domino effect here? I mean, thoughts on this? We've had a, a few very interesting conversations here, uh, here at Cybos. Um, when people talk to talent and aspiration and executive sponsorship when the camera is rolling, but in private conversations, um, a lot of the bankers have started talking about either the fact that their executive committees are beginning to look at themselves around their own suitability or realizing that that uncomfortable conversation has to come. And that doesn't mean that heads have to roll, but it's a question about talent, orientation. Do the, the right titles reflect what the market needs? So I expect we will see change in terms of that. I expect we'll see change in terms of advisory boards and the type of guidance that um, we're bringing in. I don't expect we'll see a massive shakeup because the reality is you need to know the thing you're changing in order to change it. Uh, but, but I am seeing for the first time, um, it's not one or two conversations. It's a lot of senior people saying our board is actually going through this exercise right now. Wow, it's, that's great to hear and I, and I think encouraging. Um, the, the other thing that struck me about this is actually uh, it's an internal hire. Um, and we've, um, you know, there's something to be said about not going for the external hire, Ali, and, and uh, maybe looking to, as Lita said, somebody that knows the beast that they have to manage. Is, is there something to be said for that here? I think RBS, I was actually just having a conversation with them uh, not too long ago. And if you look at uh, all the recent moves of current accounts, RBS out of the, the big incumbents have done pretty well recently in terms of people moving across to them. And Ross McEwen was the pre previous CEO. Yeah. I think he, he turned it around because it was in a you know, financial crisis. It was in a pretty dire state. And since then, it seems to have got its stuff together. It's it sort of, yeah, it seems to be directionally, at least, in, in a much better position. And that's, that's no small job given where it was, I would imagine. Alrighty, any other thoughts on this one? Well, I think, uh, I think that there is a broader change coming to a lot of the advisory boards in financial services, generally speaking. I mean, a CEO only focuses on how does he increase revenue, how does he decrease costs, and where does his talents come from? And if all the efforts that a bank's doing in the future is technology-focused, the sort of investment banker with the Rolodex of business cards is not necessarily going to be the next hire in that bank but rather the VP of product coming out of Amazon or wherever that person's coming from. So acquiring talent is going to, I think, come a little bit more outside of banks. I think you're going to see a larger sort of uh, trend towards that. And then secondly, it's like, are the banks actually going to win that space is the next one. Because is that sort of stellar VP of product really going to change from sort of the consumer industry brand that he's working with today to take a dive into something like a financial services organization that's going to be suffering some kind of generational change anyway, or is he going to continue on? In I think, you know, this, this is a, I, mean, I, I agree. I think that the, if you look at the sort of the next five years of a bank, technology, digital data, the transformation of a sort of digitizing to a digital bank is, is very fundamental. And it requires different skill sets and have historically been on um, the exec and the non-exec. And so, so the reality is that skill is going to need to come in onto that level because it's going to have to start to shape it from the top. These things are very hard to shape bottom up. They have to be shop, shaped top down. The question then is, what is the right type of profile for those, per for those people? Is it to get somebody out of industry and try and bring them into the financial industry, or is it to get somebody from the industry that understands technology and data? I, I, there's, there's pros and cons, but I think that, uh, that debate is out there at the moment because it's, it's very hard to come from out of industry and be effective. There is, there is a change, though, because what you described was a conversation that we've been having on the inside. So I've only been out of, of a big bank for a year. Um, I'm, reco out. I'm recovering, I'm recovering. But, but for the past 20, um, this is a conversation we've had again and again. Do the people we need to work here want to work here? So you, you're homing in on a problem that I would say has been less of a problem with every passing day, although still a problem. But the realization that the type of talent you need and want is not naturally aspiring to being a banker, has been sinking in for a long time. And I think it's one of the biggest drivers of cultural transformation. It's not just the fact that we know that in order to do digital properly, you have to think differently. 
It's also the realization that if we continue the way we were, the talent, to your very valid point, won't come. So there is no choice. And I think it's what motivates the talent. Is it mission, purpose and equity or is it cash? And I think the, how you compete in those stories, I think from a from a narrative and from a company objective mm. standpoint, does come from the board. Pur purpose is becoming probably the most important issue now. And it's not something that we've we've always harnessed well in banks. You know, what is the purpose of you being there? What is what is the, the purpose of the team or the product or the unit or the geography or the we've not harnessed that properly. We're seeing it um, we're seeing it really coming through from the from the younger people in the company. They are very purpose driven. And you have to to get that purpose right and get it relevant for them. And if so they'll be they'll be very engaged in the task. If you can't get it, um, it's the, the chances are they'll, they'll, they'll move away. And I think we've seen some of the startups and challenger banks actually get purpose quite right and yeah. as a result being able to attract a, a different type of talent. But it's not always rosy even if you get that right because we saw the story in AltFi that Monzo replaced their entire Monzo Plus team and they refunded their customers after admitting that the premium service didn't go according to plan is really really interesting i think we covered this when they launched it and i think a few people on the show at the time were when didn't feel it was very monzo felt that there was a bit of a misstep so this is this is really interesting to see so five months after launching it's going to um, going back to the drawing board after admitting the service wasn't the best it could be um, the team will be replaced and the name will be replaced um, subscriptions currently include premium services like additional ATM withdrawal allowances, travel insurance, airport lounge access, merchandise, and much, much more. But Monzo Plus uh, and Monzo's overdrafts and lending business are the bank's uh, two main sources of revenue. So this is cutting off one of the main sources of revenue, uh, but really quite bravely in a, in a position where they're a growing business that's scaled massively. But the, the question that everyone asks about them is, is the profitability question. I think each Monzo customer is worth something like one and a half thousand pounds based on the, the valuation on each customer. So they, they want to get revenue from there. And the subscription model seems a little bit like we need cash fast. So I actually think the fact that they're, they're well, scrappy or replacing it is more of, a, more of them highlighting actually we don't need cash instantly because we don't need to have this as just as a... As a it seems a bit like a cash grab, and now it's, they've got rid of it. Is that, is that what you felt? Because as a consumer, so I bank, I bank with HSBC, but I, but <laughs> well I also bank with Monzo uh, and a number of others because I, I am a, a banking geek, right? But uh, as, a, as a user... Is that why? The, the, yes. Just to try it? That's yes. your... No, I, I actually think yes, Monzo created just a new category. I think they yeah, were the everyday spend on the front of your salary yeah. account, but sorry, Lita. Uh, yeah. well, but it was just to try it, which drives my usage as the experience, but I have every bank on my bloody thing because because I I, I I want to try them but um but monzo when when monzo plus came out it felt a little out of character um and i must admit i didn't use it uh but i do remember getting the the the, the, the information and thinking oh that's a little bit out of character and if you stop and think about it the user is like is it a money grab is this why I came to you for? I think there's an identity piece, right? If that's what you want, you go to HSBC Premier, you do, don't do Monzo. Um, but there is also um, an authenticity to the brand question of how they've handled the this didn't work. So with my user hat on, this felt more aligned. With my industry person hat on, the question of, of profitability remains open for, for this. And, and Ali, to your point, I don't need money if the money comes from investment, you still need it, right? Because until you have repeatable sticky revenue... Is, it, is, there another, is there another thing going on here, which is subscriptions? Because some of the subscription models I've seen work the best are where you're already consuming the product and they say, look, you're, you're consuming the product, you can buy all you want for a certain amount of money. Yeah as opposed to a bundled proposition yeah. that then has to be sold as a subscription. And I, and I just think that the, the, the consumer mentality of subscription purchasing is, yeah, I'm, I'm downloading loads of Netflix films. Uh, you mean I can have it all for you know, one price? It felt like that abundance of choice. Same with Amazon Prime. You, know, you, you, you were using it and you were saying, I'm using a lot of this. Oh, I get it for one price. Whereas a, a proposition where you're saying you can have a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this, and it's going to cost you five pounds a month, you know, well, I'm not sure I need that or want it. 
I think that value conversation for the consumer was was sort of missing. And it's interesting to me uh, on this this point about bundling products. It felt like bundling commodity products rather than a financial service. And actually, the shift we see is from those commodity products that have uh, the current account, the savings account, the travel insurance, the, the package of products that you then bundle together for a fee versus actually where's the value in my life what what problem does this solve but and interestingly to, to pick on on what um, to pick up on uh, on what Nile just said this stuff is hard right and and traditional banks have been trying to get it right for a long time not always getting it right but but uh, the the way that the challengers hit the traditional banks originally on on pricing access onboarding uh, experience it, it hurt and it looked easy and I'm not suggesting it was, but it looked easy. And I think there are two layers of learning here. One is that some of the stuff, particularly around bundling and pricing, is hard. And you're not going to always get it right. And from a traditional banker's perspective, it's a bit like, welcome to the club, boys. The thing that is extremely interesting, and it's the learning going back to the traditional club, is they fixed it. They fixed it fast yeah. and they were honest about what didn't work. So if we can continue on this constant iteration, this is good for the industry. I, how many times can you... Uh, remember a really high profile product launch and then followed by several months later high profile product pulling I can see a lot of things that have been pushed out into the market and people pretend as a success with like grimaces grimace smiles and everybody knows they're not so this is this is the opposite this is good of that. for their brand and it's phenomenal for their brand if they hadn't had done this they'd have been really really worried so yeah I am it's no secret I'm a big fan of uh, of Curve Imagine Curve and they launched a similar one at the start of the year but it had the USP of unlimited Amex on there and I absolutely loved it for the 36 hours as soon as they got rid of the Amex part of it I don't think I've used any of the other services from it so I I I, again, I don't think it's kind of I don't think this this these kind of products are on brand for some of the challenges so absolutely HSBC I would I would want I would almost want to see that but for Monzo Starling I don't need that for the travel insurance. I don't need that for airport lounge access. It just doesn't seem connected to the brands. There's something interesting about brand permission that you're pointing to there that I think is really, really powerful. And there's, there's also that broader profitability question about um, they seemed almost allergic to lending for a very long time, as if lending itself was the thing that they were trying to prevent. The deposits are all held at the Bank of England. It's an ultra, ultra conservative bank in that sense. Um, but now they have started doing overdrafts. They have started to look into loans. It's almost like the, the banking model of lending doesn't have to be predatory. So how can you use digital services to make that more supportive in people's lives becomes, becomes an interesting question given the data and the platform that somebody like them has. It's going to be an interesting one to watch. Any, any thoughts on this, Chris? Uh, I mean, I'm just generally speaking fascinated by kind of like the neo bank and challenger bank segment, generally speaking, I guess. But I, I think it was like a total like client cost of acquisition play to start with. You put a million clients on the platform, then you throw more product at the wall to see what sticks. But I mean, the one uh, like theme that I can sort of see with all of the different brands is they're all fairly uncompromising on their user experiences. And I can tell you this from like a vendor to them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you're like trying to partner and work with these types of companies, I mean, first and foremost is the user experience. And if it doesn't fit in the way they want to disseminate their own user experience, it doesn't fit with them sort of thing. So like it doesn't surprise me at all to have a high profile product launch and a high profile product pull uh -huh. that they're kind of proud at and I think that goes with the type of brands for all of these guys. I mean I can think of a couple of Nordic ones off the top of my head that have done sort of similar things where they've had a high profile product that hasn't gone as well or they've repriced the product because they didn't think it was appropriate for the actual experience the clients, their clients were actually getting. So um, I mean for me it's kind of business as usual. Good stuff. But not needing to get it right publicly first time is actually an interesting lesson for others. It will be interesting to see if anyone else, not to name any names, revisits their stable of products. I don't need this. No one's using it. Kill it. Right, yeah. Don't, don't keep flogging the dead horse and the, the money bonfire and the zombie products. Uh, there's, there's a really interesting statement here as well. Product marketing manager Tom Davies announced the whole new 11-person uh, team would uh, now be dedicated to Monzo Plus with the existing team finding other impactful areas in the business. So uh, it is about reassigning and getting to that small team um, that can be as effective and kind of going back to their roots. So um, fingers crossed they, they get this right and um, there's, uh, that, that uh, we see more of this type of behavior as you say, Lita. 
Um, next story comes from Finextra, and this is, um, this is about, instead of closing products, opening one uh, in an interesting way. Um, so Stalling opens online banking option for its business customers. So they're adding their online banking option for its 66,000 businesses and sole trader account customers. Initially available to businesses and sole traders, the online adoption will be extended to personal and joint account holders at a later date. So interesting that Stalling were very much the uh, mobile-only challenger alongside Monzo, alongside Revolut. They were seen as like the poster child for how you do the mobile adoption in the UK. Now moving to online, what, what were your thoughts when you saw this, Ali? Well, my business banks with Starling, and I've been on the forums. There's, um, there's demand for it. I'm actually really quite excited for it because you can load it up, you can, and, uh, and then if you're on the train and you lose signal, you can still have it in front of you. That, that weirdly, that's the biggest impact for me, that I can still have that even without signal. You make an interesting point. It's almost like those tiny things that seem like gimmicks are sometimes the most important things to a customer. Yeah, and the knock-on effect of that means that if I'm on a, again, on a train or a plane or whatever, I can still do some work, whereas if, I, if I'm on a plane and that plane doesn't happen to have Wi-Fi, I can't, I, I can't check the bank balance, I can't check the, I can't check the most recent transactions. I mean, I, I look at this in quite a simple way sometimes. Look at the size of a mobile, look at the size of a laptop. And the reality is, you know, even if you have fantastic navigation, the depth that you can get on a desktop uh, or laptop is much, much deeper. And, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with simple personal banking, you probably don't need it most of the time. But when you're dealing with corporate banking, you do. Yeah. And, you know, even if it's a, if it's a small corporate, um, the, the complexities go up sort of quite exponentially. And you you have to have more space, <laughs> and, you That's know. Right. So it's, it's it's actually quite simple. And I don't. And I think also think about it. A lot of people, a lot of business people are mobile, but the majority of small businesses are actually not. They're actually in a workplace. Your train may be your workplace, but you are. You know, you it are. Is. You know, the train is his workplace. Most people are actually in their shop or in their business and their factory, and they are they are working in a in a, a more classic environment. So I it's, think it makes, I think it makes right. a lot of sense. It made me smile because it's not exciting and gimmicky. It's responsive. And, and if we're talking about the change on the Monzo side being on brand, this is 100% on brand for Starling. It is practical and responsive to what the business user needed. So here it is. Um, and for me, that's what it's about. If the next thing that your community needs has a high degree of innovation and complexity, then go for it. But the reality is you want to get out of people's way, you want to make it easy. And if this is what makes it easy and you give it to them in good time, then you're succeeding. It's something about getting the basics right that can be really, really powerful. There's, there's so much uh, innovation theater, but actually so much of it is about just doing the right thing, even if it seems dull. And to, to add to the point you were making earlier, Starling started with a very strong identity of being mobile only but actually the user experience is not about the screen size it's about the user journey and they were not too caught up in their own narrative when this request to come up came up to not do it so it's a it's a good thing for all of us to remember sometimes any other thoughts chris sme space is a significantly difficult space to sort of deal with generally speaking in, in banking nevertheless Never, no reflection on Starling or whatever, but my, uh, I'm a little bit on the fence to, to debate it a bit. Like, I think SMEs these days, and maybe it's a country thing as well, but SMEs these days, when they are spending time on their desktops or on web applications, I'm not sure that is a banking application. Like, I know at least with I, my personal company account, well, the, the thing that I would spend most of my time on is kind of like my invoicing and these yeah, sorts of, of sort of interface. So given open banking, I would much rather see my bank, Starling Bank in this particular example, integrated into the application that I'm literally spending my time on. And then they wouldn't have to deal with their own web application. I mean, you know, we um, feel quite strongly about this because our team but, has done some work on exactly that with LBS NatWest and, and we're aligned. But I would be very surprised if we didn't A, see that soon hmm. and B, the fact that there is something else that is also needed doesn't mean that this is, isn't also needed. Mm. Uh, so I'm with you. I don't think this solves everything. I don't think like the Messiah is now walking on water. But, but it's a simple way to say to the customers, I'm listening. Mm. No, if Anne is listening yes. to you right now, you'll see that next. But banks, the thing banks need to get their functionality in a way that they have their standalone applications, but they have 
the functions can be placed in different areas. And if the customer wants to access that through an accounting software platform or an invoicing platform or something else, you have to make sure your, your um, architecture is modular enough to get that product and that service to where the customer wants it. And actually, if you think about these two stories together, this is, this is, these are two companies listening to their customers. Yeah, that's a good thing. You know? Uh, Ali, you once talked about your spreadsheet, I think, when you were on a show previously for, for cash flow forecasting. Because I think we we've, we hear a lot from small business customers that, um, the, as, as you were saying, Chris, that uh, the, the accounting platform and the invoicing system uh, is the operating system of the business. But it tends to tell you what's happened and it allows you to take actions, but it doesn't tell you what you should do. Um, so you see businesses like Fluidly and others starting to come into that space to help you with bits of cash flow. Um, but you're, are you still using that? spreadsheet to help you manage the business? I or am you... still using that spreadsheet, but that's because I, um, I, I, I know it now kind of inside out. But interestingly, I've actually, um, a hairdresser around the corner from us, now banks with Starling. And I was talking to them about how they do the predictions and stuff like that. They're using entirely on zero now. Um, and also, this is something I would never use myself, but they didn't want to initially go with Starling because branches. Um, and now they can go to the post office. It's another example of them actually listening to what the consumers want. And SMEs are very, very different. One SME from yeah. another is, is One huge. size fits all doesn't work no. in SME. And that's why it's so difficult to bank with SME. So I think from a banking point of view, it's either you go the API route or you focus and pick your niches. It doesn't mean you have to do one niche, but you focus on a certain uh, type of SME and then you expand sort of ho horizontally. Um, but I mean, that, it's not easy. That's why it hasn't yeah. been done. It's not easy. So. There are so many different sizes and shapes. Interesting yeah. points. All right. Um, well, it's, uh, it's time for a quick break. So let's just hear from our sponsors. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Uh, at 11FS, we're super excited to bring you uh, the first glimpse of our most ambitious media project to date. We made a documentary. Uh, for years, the story of the financial crisis has been told in isolation. The bad things that happened during it, the global fallout from it, and the effect on consumers as a result. We wanted to tell the untold story how the UK financial services sector evolved out of the crisis. It created the perfect ecosystem and grew into the thriving global fintech capital we have today. We conducted over 20 interviews with leaders of the UK's biggest banks, regulators and fintechs, and they're all sharing their first-hand experiences of the changes that propelled the UK into its position of as a global financial services hub. The trailer's available to watch now on 11years.com. Film. That's 11years.film. Pause this uh, podcast, check it out on your mobile phone now if you've got uh, some signal. And if you're in your car, then check it out when you get to your desk. Uh, head over to the website and watch it and do let us know your thoughts at 11FS. The full film drops Wednesday, October the 3rd, and please, please check it out. All right, next story. Uh, Alibaba acquires a third of Ant Financial. This comes from Finextra. Alibaba has acquired a 33% stake in Ant Financial, strengthening the ties between the two internet giants. The deal is a result of restructuring Ant Financial proposed by Alibaba, which terminates a profit-sharing arrangement under which Ant Financial pays a royalty and service fees equal to 37.5% of the pre-tax profits to Alibaba. Jack Ma actually separated the two businesses back in 2011, and the restructure has been agreed weeks after Jack Ma stepped down as chairman. It's believed the restructure will pave the way for an IPO. Um, what were your thoughts when you saw this, Ali, leader? Any thoughts? Oh, I'm an idiot. I thought the whole thing was the same thing anyway. But yeah, you yeah. didn't know they were separate legal entities. Um, I think Ant Financial has been, though, one of those things that bankers talk about from, a, from a, how they use data and how they model things as, as being really somebody to watch for, for quite so, some time. Yes, absolutely. But I remember that when the, the restructuring was first announced, thinking, OK, 
do I need to get excited about how Jack Ma manages his like tax liabilities because that's pretty much what it is. Um, and then I know there's more complexity to it, but I kind of felt the same way in reverse. Other than the fact that it does probably pave the way to an IPO, am I missing something? Because to me, this doesn't change. It sends some signals, right? But it doesn't really... I'm probably missing something, but yeah, it doesn't but change the world. It sends some powerful signals about power consolidation, about um, wealth allocation, and about intentionality. But does it change the way these two players and their dad are changing the world? I don't think so. Chris, do you disagree? You're biting your lip a little bit. No, no, I think, I mean, it's a liquidity event, right? So, yay for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, great, so, great I mean, for them. Like, the you, end, you move money from one pocket to another kind of thing. Yeah, so it's a liquidity event. You move towards an IPO and you disseminate between, like, the, I guess, the focus of what the two companies are going to do. And I mean, my experience with Ant Financial has been actually, like, extremely positive. They've been extremely focused on Western markets. And, um, I mean... From my point of view, I'm quite excited to see it, actually. Can you Can, can we that? say the obvious, though? It, sh it shows that they're not done growing, they're not done taking over, right? That's the obvious. I, I, I don't I, want to follow I, that point, Chris, because you were talking about your experience of using the uh, financial in Western markets. Can you give me some examples? Well, no, just dealing with them as vendors in, oh, okay. in Western markets. But my, I think my general point is I think their focus for expansion is to capitalise outside of China. If yeah. we just split the, split the line between inside and outside China, I think Ant Financial's folk, uh, future is outside China. Interesting. To, to bring what they're doing to the rest of the world. And quite frankly, I think uh, sort of getting like royalty payments out, turning it into a liquidity event that it's now like an equity and get poising it for an IPO kind of just reinforces that. It's just a part of a growing trend. I mean, at the end of June 2019, Alipay and its local e-wallet partners served more than 1.2 billion users globally. It's absolutely massive. And the data sets they have put them in a really, really interesting place. And what, what this flags is there's more to come, right? Yeah, 100%. Definitely. Speaking of more to come, next story comes from Finextra. Um, American Express taps open banking for account-to-account -account payments. Uh, American Express to move to that account-to-account uh, -account space, enabling UK consumers to pay for goods and services directly from their bank account. Set for launch later this year, the pay with bank transfer will be a real-time payment option available via open banking APIs to current account holders at UK banks, regardless of whether they are American Express card members or not. Um, so consumers will be able to make the online payments via bank transfer without a card to hand, view their current bank account balances uh, prior to confirming the payment, and will benefit from bank-level data security. Of course, we have seen similar moves from MasterCard and Visa. Uh, do we think this is the schemes just trying to make sure they're playing in that account-to-account -account space and that still their brand is represented? Uh, how serious do we think this is? There's a couple of companies, um, one that I know Amex has invested in called uh, Billhop, which allows you to pay from an Amex card and it will then deposit it directly in someone's bank account. Um, I think it's almost a bit of an extension of that. They've had a little play, had a little play in terms of paying directly to bank accounts and now they're going to bring it all in-house. Interesting. Huh? I think it's part of a pursuit of relevance, um, which is absolutely commendable because the world is changing and the world in which, although I have an Amex card in my wallet, the world where that was king is not with us anymore. Their fees are untenable. I love my Amex card and the miles it brings, but Ooh, have you got increasingly adopt. No, <laughs> what am I? Am I do, do I look like a dude? Um, no, I have the, the bog standard BA my one, but but adoption is going down, right? And and so they need to do something, and 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 um, compressing the fees is so all of that good story. Um, but tying all our stories together, is this what their users most want? I doubt it. Is this tied to why someone has an Amex in their pocket? I doubt it. Will they do enough, to your point, Ali, to actually redefine my relationship to them? If they do that, then we have another conversation. But, but for me, it's a case of, I see why you're doing it. I don't see why, personally, I would use it, but that's okay. I, I don't have to use every product you put my way. Are you going to do enough to redefine your customer's relationship to you? Because if the reasons why people come to you are not supported by this and you don't do enough of this to give me a new reason to come, then it's, um, it's, it's not innovation theatre because it's real, but it's inadequate to, to achieve what you're trying to achieve. It could become a, a, a historical footnote if it's not careful. The pay-by-bank the pay app 
piece. Is there a massive consumer demand for it? Probably not. Is there a merchant demand? I think that there's a question there because of yeah. the interchange fees, especially for Amex. So is this one that's more merchant driven than, than consumer driven? And can you get the experience there given strong customer authentication is in the mix now as well? 100%. You know, you know it's an interesting, there's an interesting thing here, which is Customer demand. If you think about all the different offerings, you've got you've got credit cards, you've got bank cards, you've got e-wallets, traditional banks, challenger banks, different customer journeys. But the reality, too much choice. There's isn't a it? lot of choice. But the reality, if you think about it, when you're making a payment, well, what are you really wanting to do? You say, okay, I'd like to actually, I'd like this directly debited off my bank account, or I'd like to have this on credit, or I'd like to have this on an e-wallet. It's sort of pay PSP. now, pay later, pay and from there. And but you, you sort of have to get a different different mechanism out every time or different different piece of the of your phone i think what's interesting here is it's you know there could be a trend where people say look you you have a a, lo- a card that is your main card and it redirects the different like type of kind of thing you redirect to the type of thing that you want and you can maybe have a bit of time to think about it so you can see your transactions and you can sit there in the evening and say, actually, you know what, I'd like to put that on credit this month. Uh, so actually, if you get that time lag and they, un- they choose to underwrite that, then that's a differentiating offering. You should be doing that rather than giving them the idea. Uh, it's, I like my idea there. But, but, thing- but I think these opportunity, this opportunity space is really interesting. Klarna have done well in the pay now, pay later space. Yes. And they've yes. solved not only merchant problems, but they've solved consumer problems. People, you know, users of Klarna love it because it's just, it's going to get sent back. I'm going to get my money back. I did, it doesn't come out of my account immediately like those are like that's a i want to try the thing but i want to buy it from online but i don't want to pay for it now like that's a that's a real problem that can is there to be solved and it is definitely working so if this brings you into that space um then then you do well in solving both sides of the merchant and the consumer side but what about strong customer authentication chris do you think there's there's, there's an angle there uh, given where cards are and, and you know the announcements by stripe and adjun that yeah. strong customer authentication could be a challenge for the card players it's definitely a friction point but i mean like if i just baseline the conversation a little bit and if you think like first principles thinking it's the idea of taking money from one account and putting it into another if i buy something if i buy a coke i'm taking money out of my account to to putting it into the merchant so it's kind of at the end of the day all you care about is getting the money out of my account to another account anything in between is just friction points so for me the whole account to account transfers and i guess that's the ultimate Nirvana for open banking, generally speaking, and if you were to globalize it. So I think the key to this sort of stuff is actually the strong client authentication, because if, if, you, if, if going back to that first principles thinking, and it's all about getting the money into the account, then at the end of the day, uh, cards, all these sort of things are going to become redundant at some point. They're all some the way of securing and preventing failure and fraud in that difficulty of moving money from one place to another. And yeah, getting that balance of experience and security is so, so critical, I think, with those yeah. things. Are they? Like in the sense that are they in the sense that in, in Denmark, for example, we have like two-factor authentication on some of the use of the cards. So actually my mobile will actually buzz and I have to sort of authenticate a transaction with a national ID system. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, like, just there to give you to an idea, it. there's like, uh, the card isn't necessarily the, the sort of, the tool I would choose to use if I had a choice. Uh, 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 and we've seen the, the challenger banks in the UK have, have similar things. They yeah. have, they, they, they're doing right. biometrics right. Uh, when, you, when you have a, a pushback from the card scheme. But uh, the, there's something interesting there about all of those different approaches in different countries, the lack of uniformity there and solving problems for both sides. I mean, Ali, you know, you're rolling around looking at this stuff uh, day in, day out. What, what did you think when you, when you saw this? Um, Going back to on the small business thing with my various spreadsheets, I actually use that as a as a form of credit. Perhaps probably a little bit too uh, a little bit too close to the line sometimes than I should, but I actually use it that way so that I think, oh, I know I've got that money coming in, so I'm going to use it. And I, it gives me another another option to get it into people's accounts. That's the with my merchant hat on. That's what I found it quite useful at. Ah, um, interesting angles are all around. All right, um, last story this week uh, comes from Finextra, and apparently over a third of UK bank branches have been closed in the past five years. Really 
significant number. Uh, new re research from uh, which reveals more than the third of branches closed. Uh, that's 3,303 um, in that time, uh, reducing the national tally from 9,800 to 6,500. And of course, this is something we see internationally, not just in the UK as well. It's, uh, it, it's a real macro trend. Um, closures primarily from the big four banks, but outside the big four, we have seen it as well with co-op. In contrast, Nationwide have actually retained 96% of its branches following a pledge, and, and Nationwide are in, in an interesting space there. Um, so uh, what do we think about this? Is this an inevitable trend as customers are moving towards uh, where they're going? I've got to bring it back to the merchant side of things, because although as a consumer, you don't often use branches unless you're going to open a mortgage. If you're, say, a hairdresser, and you're getting paid a lot in cash because your consumers perhaps want to pay in cash, you then still need to be able to go to a branch and pay that in. And I think that's, that's where it's going to hit. It's not so much on the consumers using it, it's going to hit the merchants themselves. I think that's fair. I think that there are a few, a few different sort of push-pull factors there because the reality is that users and consumers of a particular generation will only go to the branch, I'm looking at you, Niall, I will only go to HSBC. No, because I bank with you. I will only go to the branch if there is something I need to go to the branch for. So, for a particular type of consumer, whether I need the branch or not is driven is by the bank, right? So, actually, the the reduction tends to be in keeping and in line with that needs reducing. Because, yes, there are fewer branches, but actually there are fewer people in the branches because the number of things you need to go in the branch for are actually really limited. So from a consumer perspective, and living in a place like London, you don't really feel the pinch. Uh, so I think that is the happy bit of the story, that actually the bank moves things online before they close the branch, they don't disenfranchise you. It's when you're looking at the people who either heavily transact in the areas that need the physical presence, live in areas that had one branch and that branch was closed, are older or need assistance. Um, but I'm increasingly seeing some very creative solutions for those spaces. Like? Um, so unexpectedly, there, there is a series of branches that one of the big Greek banks has brought out that are designed for people with special, special communication needs, so the, uh, for blind, hard of hearing, etc. The entire branch is geared around people who will have a, a different set of needs. So there are very rarely humans in there, but the, the way they're set up are much, much easier to, to interact with than your phone. Uh, there's a bank in Italy that has um, essentially granny workshops, and there are people with iPads who are there for people who are not technically savvy. And they, they don't have a traditional branch, but they teach you how to do it. And if you can't learn, they will do it for you again and again and again. Um, it, it supports the model without forgetting the, the consumers. And of course, they're like the, the, mobile, the mobile branches that go to the more remote areas, which is 1980s, right? It's not new. But I think there's something about physical footprint is expensive. Banks are businesses. They're, they've got to balance the, that, that sort of uh, equation somehow. But are there other ways as well that, that we could start to do that? I, I like that idea of, of kind of the education on the digital side for people that are vulnerable. We, we spend a lot of time and, and effort on uh, making our, our digital apps and our digital products accessible for people with disabilities. So it's, it's, it's a... It's a, it's a hugely important area and um, so that you know that's one of the ways of, of dealing with this you've, you've got to make if you're gonna you're gonna have a steady move away from football footfall onto online you need and to make football. sure you're, and <laughs> football. And football also. you need to make sure your you know offering is as as complete as possible so that you can you can enfranchise people because it's a very very difficult issue and I think you know, you're so right. In, in, in the big cities, it doesn't tend to become a problem because there's, there's a branch somewhere that's always, always open and always available. It, it, as, you, as you get away from conurbation, major conurbation areas, it gets more difficult. And it's, it's a, very, a very difficult issue. I think what you'll see in the future is probably more sharing of premises. So I think that that trend will, will probably happen because um, you can still maintain a physical presence, but you're sharing it with a number of different financial institutions. Banks or doing other Airbnb. Airbnb of branches. It's well, the bank. Which bank? All of them. Uh, yeah. So well, I think Starling yeah. partners with the post office, so they've yeah. effectively yeah. got, which I think absolute genius. But there's 
there's a lot of, of, of opportunity for, say, I don't know, Revolut to partner with Costa. You go in there, you, get, you, you can yeah. use that. Nikolai, you heard it here first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but like, that's not daft. There are no. things that are profitable in retail that could be also performing another role, like rather than turning a branch into a coffee shop, turn a coffee shop into an, a mini branch. Well, there, there is um, a, a bank in um, Vietnam that does exactly that. But without having people loitering with intent inside the coffee shop, they've actually created a... They've worked around the regulatory constraints and you can only activate because there's a there's a regulation that says you can only activate a card in the bank's own ATM for the first time or their own premise but they don't have their own ATM so they have a partnership with a particular branch of coffee shops and you can activate it in their POS um, so there are creative ways around it particularly for societies economies or segments that have a heavy reliance on cash either to, to have it to transact or the other way around um, we're just going to see more creative ways of um, of getting around it. Speaking of cash, we are here at Cybos and all of the vendors are cashless as you would expect at a, at a banking conference. Uh, Chris, what do you think as you see this? Do you think that uh, the, the consumer mindset has well and truly shifted to digital or is, are we still in that journey? Oh, I think it's still a journey. For sure, it's still a journey. And I'll the SME uh, in the corporate space? Uh, even longer journey, I guess. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, like... I mean, I, I remember in Australia in the early 2000s where we were sort of reducing the number of branches. And so mobile banking was very high. Commonwealth Bank was working with the post office. I think in Ireland, the Bank of Ireland works with the post office. That was quite innovative, like 20 years ago sort of thing. And then I, so then I noticed, like, which I didn't realize more recently, what the post office had done, they'd start franchising their post offices. So now really? you had post offices that were handling banking that you could now buy a post office, and in theory, you were people's bank. <laughs> wow. So it was very quite interesting what's happened. Next, in, uh, you're going to see an impossible burger from <laughs> <laughs> coming out of branches. And <laughs> There's also um, a KYC element as well, because I know... Um, I think it's Tinkoff Bank in Russia. Um, they, when you open an account, you have a little bloke turn up on a motorcycle, take your picture, give you a card, zoom off. And Can I just say how much I'm loving this nerdery of weird things, esoteric <laughs> things that banks do? Have you got any more, Ali? <laughs> oh, weird yeah, because KYC regulations in different countries can be quite prescriptive. And so it can be quite difficult around them and you can need, need those physical footprints. I mean, I've seen over the years some, some very strange and peculiar things to the jurisdiction. So I, uh, the bank I know in the, in the Middle East that was um, losing money on their ATMs, mostly because of how they had set up the arrangement. So they, um, they partnered with another bank and had couriers taking money to people's houses because that made sense. And it was such a delighter in terms of small, small communities, right, as well. Yeah. Um, so... Creativity I'd like a doesn't to bring money to my house, but does it have to yeah. be? Particularly if it isn't my money, right? Here's a bundle of cash. But but I think maybe, maybe another one for Uber. You know, Uber yeah. eats. You know, they can. Oh, that, that's going to come, right? Uh, one of the one of the things that we, we keep going back to is what is it what, what is it you have to do? What is it you'd rather do? And what is it your customers want? And how can you balance those without compromising your profitability? Speaking of speaking of Uber, there is a, ride, a couple of ride-hailing companies in Southeast Asia that pretty much treat their drivers as cash-in, cash-out points to an e-wallet uh, because the drivers handle a lot of cash. But then you can give them an, an amount of cash more than your ride, and now you're in an e-wallet, and now you can transact online, you can pay at merchants. So I think in emerging markets, we'll see, we'll see a lot of different things. So long as we're staying customer-focused, I think that's a good... Note to wrap up this week's news show. Um, I want to thank all of our guests, as always, for being with us at Cybos. It's, it's day four. Uh, <laughs> a lot of energy on, the, on day four of Cybos because uh, these things take it out of here. Everybody has been hitting their 12,000 steps and God knows what else. Uh, where can I've people... hatched out so many eggs on Pokemon Go. Yeah. It's been incredible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, where can people find out more about you, Niall? Uh, LinkedIn is always best for me. Thank you very much. Ali? Uh, I'm uh, at Ali Patterson on Twitter. Brilliant. And Chris? Uh, at Saxo at uh, home.saxo. Brilliant. And Lida? At Lida Glyptis, or in the office across from you. Indeed. Uh, and we're about to move office soon, so they'll all be very, very good. Um, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, or you can uh, get me Simon at 11fs.com. Uh, do let us know what you think of today's stories. Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or podcast at 11fs.com. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope for more content. And please, please don't forget to watch and share the 11 Years documentary trailer and check out the film when it drops this coming Thursday. Thank you and goodbye. 
Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon, and industry speak. So sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next. Bite-sized goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.